You put your whole self in, you take the excuses out, you let autophagy win. While stem cells grow and sprout, you cleanse, detox, and gut build balance hormones up yourself out. That's what resetting is all about. Hey, resetters. As we step into the new year, I am so thrilled to invite you on an extremely transformative journey with me in my Reset Academy. So check this out. If you're ready to kickstart your fasting and health journey, which I know so many of you have reached out to us and asked how you customize a fasting lifestyle for you, my Reset Academy is the absolute best place to be. So here's what you get in the academy, and I like to think of it in terms of a complete picture. So imagine being surrounded by people who understand your journey, who are passionate for fasting, who want to lift you up and will support you every step of the way. My academy is not just me, my team, but it is an incredible group of people that are all dedicated to building fasting lifestyles and supporting each other in it. This is why I created the Reset Academy. So when you join, you gain access to all the exclusive calls where my team and I share the latest insights, we answer your burning questions, and we guide you towards your health goals. That's not it. We didn't stop there. By becoming a member, you're not just investing in a membership, but you're investing in yourself. I am such a fan of setting you up to win this year. And my academy is the best place I know to do that. I want to keep you focused. I want you to customize this for you. And I want you to succeed at your health goals this year. End of story. So if you're ready to unlock your fullest potential and embrace a fasting lifestyle, join me. If it feels good, join me. And let's make this year an incredible year for us all. So all you got to do is go visit drmindypels.com slash Reset Academy to become a member. I can't wait to welcome you. I can't wait to see you on the Zoom calls. I can't wait to be in community with you. And most importantly, let's get your health goals handled and let's do this together. It's so much better together. Together. So that's drmindypels.com slash Reset Academy. Excited to see you there. We are live resetters. And like I said, I have a really cool interview for you today. This is Dr. Nasha Winters. And it's so funny because when we interviewed you on women and wellness, you were like, I was like, is it Nasha? Is it Nasha? Like, and you're like, it's like Echinacea. And so it's awesome because that's how I remember it. I have to like do it in my head, like Dr. Nasha, Echinacea. I remember it. So it's all good. My own family still gets it confused where I grew up. So it's all good. Awesome. Awesome. So thank you for coming on. I, I really, well, you can't see the 9,000 people that are watching right now, um, but this is my resetter tribe. And this group is really near and dear to my heart. Um, we've been doing some really cool things in here, like fasting. And um, we've done in the beginning of the year, we did a 15 day metabolic reset where I did I threw all these different kinds of fast together. I put fast mimicking, I put a 36 hour water fast, we did some keto for 15 days, we just every couple of days, we kept switching things. So yeah, so this group is really savvy. And um, thirsty, really thirsty for knowledge. Um, so you're the cancer expert on, you know, metabolism and cancer as a metabolic disease. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. And I actually think it's really important to point out to you and your, and your tribe that you guys are far more expert at the cancer discussion than you think. You know, somehow we think they're separate, but it is exactly everything you're dealing with. It is come, it comes right down to a metabolic mitochondrial pickup. That's yeah. all it is. Right. And so we try and make it so much scarier and bigger than it really right. is. But it's, you're, you really are the sort of the mitochondria, like the um, keepers of the mitochondria is sort of how I see this. I love, yeah. I love that. And you know what? I, for the longest time, the way I would explain cancer to patients was, um, 
all a cancer cell is, is it was a healthy cell that turned into a cancer cell. So once you identify what turned it into the cancer cell, then you can stop making cancer. And I think that's really what we're trying to do with all the fasting and the keto um, is really just all of us, whether you have cancers or not, cancer or not, is stop making cancer. Exactly. Exactly. And then remember, all of us have cancer. All of us. Right. None of us are without it. It is part of us. And as you stated, it's sort of kept in check by other metabolic processes in the body. And it only goes haywire when enough sort of things accumulate in sort of that mitochondrial bucket until it overwhelms the system and we basically lose sight of what keeps things in order, what keeps things in communication. And so um, one of my colleagues, a really well-known naturopathic oncologist, she calls cancer sort of the ultimate sociopath. Um, So I like that because it's sort of like, it goes a little cray cray and has no regard, no remorse for what will happen. And it will eventually kill itself in the process because it will utilize all the resources until there's nothing left. We can reestablish um, remorse and, and stability anywhere along that journey. It sometimes might be a little more difficult in certain situations than others, but I, I want people to always feel that, that sense of hopefulness that you can keep cells that are currently moving about the building, not becoming rogue. And right. then cells that have sort of gone off the deep end, like you said, explore and find out what might have contributed to that process and correct it and stabilize things. And really, this becomes no different than a maintainable chronic disease process, just like osteoporosis or diabetes or cardiovascular disease, which I saw on your amazing um, base group page, uh, are a lot of questions with regards to other conditions, even outside of cancer. To me, it's all in the continuum of mitochondrial dysfunction. Right, which is so exciting. I posted an article this morning um, from Thomas Seyfried. And, you know, as we talked, if you guys haven't seen the discussion that we had on women and wellness, go. I posted that podcast yesterday. Dr. Nasha is a a cancer survivor. She will tell you her whole story on that podcast. And when she approached her own cancer healing process, all we knew, or what she was at least smart enough to figure out, was (laughs) that perhaps it wasn't a genetic issue, that it was more that there were other parts of the cell that were really struggling. And Seyfried is really one of those people that has turned our vision from saying, this is genetic, so sorry, it's in your genes, there's nothing you can do, to wait a second, this is a different part of the cell that is getting sick. So before we jump into like fasting, can you talk a little bit about the mitochondria and how it it plays a part in, in creating a cancer cell? Sure. Now, most of us remember from just our sort of like fifth grade biology class, that little image of of the the organelle within the cell known as the mitochondria. We only remember it being called the mighty mitochondria. And that's about all we recall from our undergraduate or grade school biology class. So we knew it had something to do with energy. So it creates energy, but it is dependent 100% on the energy we feed it, on the input we give it, whether it's from our food, our water, our air, um, the environment around us, even our thoughts impact the um, energy distribution from those little vulnerable cells. And I use the word vulnerable because they are kind of the least walled off and least guarded of all of our cell structures. So that's by design because they also need to be able to adapt and communicate very effortlessly with what information is around them, either directly in the cytoplasma or from other cells around the body. And even within a single cell, depending where it's located and what organ, you might have thousands and thousands of mitochondria all stacked up together that are talking to each other. But basically, those little guys can be very vulnerable in a good or a bad way to what input we give it. So um, if, for instance, we now have learned things such as, you know, our well-meaning, let's give a Tylenol to a little one who has a fever to break the fever and make them comfortable. We now know that that was probably one of the worst ideas we've ever had. Mm -hmm. And yet we still dish it out like M&Ms. It's an over-the-counter medication. And it's also one of the most toxic mitochondrial poisons there, there is. And we've even learned that it may be one of the big contributors to childhood cancers, as well as 
to the uh, the um, autism spectrum disorder, which are in and of themselves mitochondrial damage disease processes. Mm-hmm. So that's just a really good clue that we're all aware of on a daily basis. But it's so much more than that. You know, um, I, I saw that one of your readers or one of your um, people on your group was asking about well, what is sort of the right food combination for the mitochondria. I saw that, yeah. It was a really good one. And one of the things, you know, um, I always, we talked about a lot in our first interview together was we were all low carb, you guys, before the um, industrial food revolution. Yeah. That was not weird. That was not trend. That was not fat. (laughs) That was the way it was. Yeah. And we expended that input more readily than we do today, you know, so we had to work hard for those carbs and we spent them as quickly as we accumulated them. But we also ate only about 30% of our diet as carbohydrate at that time. And today we average about 70 to 80% of our diet as carbohydrate. So that's a big change in like 1850s or so. And we started the industrial food um, processing of flour and sugar. Um, and that's when things really took a turn, big turn. I think that's such an interesting point that you make because, uh, what I see when I sit down with a client is they'll tell me, oh, I've got an incredible sugar addiction, or you'll never be able to get me over my sugar addiction, or I can't stop eating. And then we start to slowly move them towards a keto diet. We start to teach them fasting. And there's like something miraculous that like clicks in. And all of a sudden, they're like, wait a second, I can do this. And I think what's really important for people to understand is the principles around low carb, around fasting, they're innate to your body. It was once we, the industrial revolution happened, once we had access to food all the time, once we started getting our taste buds around processed foods and grains and sugars, that's unnatural. And Mm -hmm. what you and I are really trying to get people to is to get back to what the human body was designed to eat and operate like. Exactly. And you got, you know, you guys nailed it. I mean, the, 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 the whole, you know, idea behind your group is resetting everything and it's taking it back to a place of innate wisdom of of how we were meant to be as these um, dual hybrid engines, which takes us right back to the final component of the mitochondria as we understand it is the way we process energy, you know, take information in and process it and distribute it throughout the body, but specific to cancer, when we have a healthy functioning mitochondria, it does a heck of a lot more than just create our energy sources, a lot more. In fact, one of the most under um, descri- you know, described or, or uh, an overlooked concept around mitochondrial function with regards to the cancer patient is it is up to the mitochondria to create apoptosis, which is programmed cell death. Mm. So basically, you have a condition that showed up because of damaged mitochondria. And yet you could throw every chemo, radiation, surgery, fast, um, although fast has has some help here, but other, you know, supplements, different things at this process. And if the mitochondria are not functioning properly, or if they're too few in number, as we naturally age, I mean, aging is frankly a diminishing of quality and function and quantity of our mitochondria then we also don't have the built-in mechanism to actually create programmed cell death. Because when I talked about that rogue sociopathic cancer cell that our colleague Tina Kazor discusses, um, gives, gives credence to, is that it doesn't know how or when to die. That mechanism, that, that messaging system is, is gone in the broken down mitochondria. And you cannot overcome a cancering process without apoptosis. So that's one of the big players in this. That's that I've never heard it explained that way. So thank you. That makes so much sense. And one of the way one of the reasons I got on this journey of understanding where fasting and keto fits into the human body was from a dear friend who had cancer. Mm-hmm. And at 40 years old, I always tell my patients this story or when I do like a live event, I'm like at 40 years old, she was at the peak of her life. She had an amazing family, an amazing job and a really cool house. Like on paper, she was doing great. No symptoms. She went in for a routine mammogram, came out with a cancer diagnosis. 
And they gave her like three months to live with chemo and radiation. So it, it had already spread everywhere. And she turned it into 11 years. And she threw everything out at really tenacious woman. Um, but what we what towards the end of her life, it was like the chemo wasn't working, the lifestyle wasn't working. And I remember two months before she died, she asked me, Mindy, what do you know about fasting? Now, this was five years ago. So we didn't, wow. we didn't really know. I mean, Jason Fung wasn't out there talking <laughs> about fasting. We, we didn't really have, you know, we didn't have, I don't think even uh, Dr. Osumi's work had been, you know, out. So um, I didn't really know. It was just emerging. And w- your explanation explains why throwing medicine at it wasn't the solution for her. And ultimately, um, was her death. So uh, can you talk a little bit about where fasting fits in? And now in our group, we do all different types of fasting. So a lot of people want to know what's the best fast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just warning you now. I'm okay know. with that. <laughs> because there's a best fast for each situation, right? So um, that's why I do love the work of like Dr. Fung's book that outlines a lot of different options, a lot of approaches. And of course, he's more broad sweet, but in his one-on-one consulting or with his team, they look more at the individual and they hone in what's specific for you. So keeping that in mind, when you write a book for the masses, you have to kind of keep the broad sweep. But in reality, in a one-on-one, we might take that a little further. So that being said, is frankly, any form of fasting you can do is going to be of help. That's a a biggie right there. So I've seen people say, oh, you cannot even get into autophagy until you're seven days in or three days in or five days in or, you know, you'll hear all different realms. But I'm the person who obsessively tests everything and everyone. And I can personally watch on markers so especially inflammatory markers, which again, we'll come to this because one of your uh, re- viewers wants to know some of the labs I recommend. Yeah, I saw that. I thought that was a great question. Yeah, and totally. Yeah, because so. you can kind of do your own little checks and balances. So I hope to yeah. leave you with at least a handful of juicy ones that you can all yeah. do together and learn. But basically, you can watch markers of inflammation drop. You can watch the immune system sort of wake back up. You can uh, watch even um, autoimmune markers or cancer markers fluctuate in the right direction, just even from a 13 to 16 hour window. Awesome. And, and to remind your, your listeners that um, even the MD Anderson study that showed that just women who fasted for 13 hours a day, and it didn't even talk about what they were eating or not eating. It just said those who maintained a 13 hour window with no food had a 70% reduction in recurrence compared to the populations that ate in a longer feeding window throughout the day. Wow. That right there wow. is a big wow. That's huge. It is. That's huge. It could have been that they were sitting there eating, I don't know, like Dairy Queen Sundays all day long and then went to bed and 13 hours later broke their fast. I mean, it could have been that. We don't know. Um, but ultimately, just simply that, we've gotten so overfed and undernourished. When I hear a patient say, I get wobbly if I don't eat every two to four hours, or I hear them say, I have to have a snack at bedtime. Or I hear them say, I have to eat the second I'm out of bed or I'm in trouble. Or I get the hangries right there. That is my red flag to know that person is metabolically inflexible. And they are already on to some chronic disease process, be it cancer, diabetes, osteoporosis, cardiovascular disease, dementia, doesn't matter. It's all the same disease. So it just might take on a different personality and a different person. And again, that was one of your questions, like what are some of the early warning signs? I think that's so well said because when people start to fast and we have some people this week that are doing our, I call it fast training week because I really want people to be like, like have fun with it and be curious about it and not be so rigid. So I love the fact that you're like, look at what happens in 13 to 15 yeah. hours is amazing. Yeah. Like there, I always, one of my chronic statements is there's no such thing as a failed fast. Like oh, if you, if you go 12 hours, great. And you were going right. nine before awesome. But one thing that happens and, and maybe you can touch on this a little yeah. bit is that when people start to go to fasting, they get uncomfortable. And that is the point at which those mitochondria are trying to adapt. They're trying to click into something miraculous. And yet that's usually the point we want to exit. 
So can you talk a little bit about how you go from metabolically inflexible to metabolically flexible? And will there be discomfort in that? Yeah, well, first of all, I, I love that you touch upon that because that's so true in pretty much everything we experience today in Western world. Okay. Yeah. If, if the temperature is slightly above 72 degrees or slightly below, we're uncomfortable. If we're having a difficult conversation with a, a colleague or a loved one, we're uncomfortable. If we are, you know, noticing that there's a cockroach walking across our floor in a tropical environment, we're uncomfortable. My point is that we've become incredibly sterilized in how we sense and relate to and interact with the world around us. Okay? So true. And it's, it's, it, there's a, a concept that I am have been in love with for 20 some years, which is the concept of hormesis. Mm -hmm. And hormesis is that idea of a little bit of stress that creates resilience, that creates adaptability, that creates kind of a a stoking of the internal pilot light of our lives, right? And that hermetic process might be from maybe hiking above altitude and kind of really getting a little pushed on your breathing or maybe running just past the point where it's starting to hurt, you know, or maybe sleeping in a room that's just on the edge of so cold that you might be wanting to get up to get another blanket, but you stay put. Or, you know, just I'm giving examples of places that stimulate hormesis. My joke about hormesis is every time I have to do a public speaking engagement, my (laughs) blood pressure, my pulse rate, everything goes wonky. I get a hormetic injection Every time I push myself to uh, public speaking, it's a horrible terror fear of mine. And yet I know each time I do it, I grow a little more, you know, like I'm working on it still sucks. I'm doing it every time. So that idea is the same thing when we go a little bit without food. We Mm -hmm. were always up until really until refrigeration and really until uh, the first fast food restaurants started coming out in the 50s, um, until um, we started having all night grocery stores later than that, we were uncomfortably comfortable in not having something in our lap. That is so brilliant. And, and we're now like so uncomfortable that people stockpile. I, I, I'm living in Mexico for the winter and we'll go to the Costco every once in a while, mostly for a social experiment to watch people <laughs> stockpiling probably three years worth of things like toilet paper, because mm. God forbid you have to use your hand like <laughs> you do in the vast majority. Oh, oh no, I lost her. She was just about to say something amazing. Okay, we're going to keep chatting. Let me um, let me just send her a message and she'll hopefully hop back on here. Um, so I want to, I'm going to continue on with that thought process there because I think it's pretty important um, to think about where discomfort really fits into uh, the fasting experience. And I love this idea around hormesis. Here she comes. She's coming back because I think that what I want to, oh, are you there? You came back. Yay. I wasn't sure if I was here or you were, so I just kept talking. I I kept talking too. So I love one of us, (laughs) that just created a hormetic effect. (laughs) That was uncomfortable. Um, But that's where people like will stockpile years of toilet paper where the rest of the world uses their hand or the the fact that you have to haul your water a few extra feet versus getting it comfortably out of a faucet. I mean, these are the modern world problems we deal with today. And hunger, the majority of the world feels hunger at some point in their lives Mm. on a daily basis. Mm. And there's nothing wrong with that. But we've been sort of culturally taught never to feel sadness, never to feel hunger, never to feel pain, never to feel loneliness, never to feel sorrow. So we use food as a major grounding point, as a major emotional crutch. As for some of us, it's the only sweetness and the only love we get in our lives. Mm -hmm. So it's much more than just a few hours of skipping a meal. It can be you're looking forward to the only moment in your day that gives you peace and calm. Yeah. And, and so that when you're challenging your your team, your tribe to try and push what most people are actually up against in the beginning is the psychology around it. Yeah. And 
you, like you said, I really love that you said, Hey, if you can only, if you normally can only go four hours without eating and you make it to five, that's a victory. It's a total victory. You push yourself to a six. Yeah. And then to a six. So I work people that slow. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we get to that point. And it's the same thing. What I have people do, I have them ask themselves, why am I hungry? Or am I really hungry? You know, yep. and then to look into what's going on around them. Because some people mm-hmm. eat when they're stressed. Some people don't eat when they're stressed. So find out which person you are. Then the next thing is, are you hydrated? Because if you're still hungry, usually we're dehydrated, which most of us are. Then if you're still hungry after drinking the word that, you know, checking in on your emotions, drinking your water, then that's where I have them go and grab some fat, like a spoonful yeah. of coconut oil or coconut butter, or even a little bite or two of avocado, just something just to kind of see that wait 15 minutes or so. If you're still hungry, then get a little bit of protein. Yeah. And after that, you're still hungry then for the love of God, go for some carbs, right? Right, But most people never make it to that point. Right. And few people who do, what they'll tell me in the aftermath is that it was actually all emotional. And that's where they were like, I'm going to get there no matter what. I'm going to get that cookie, that that sweet potato, that baked potato, that French fry, that whatever it was, no matter what. And I'm going to sabotage myself to get there. But even that becomes a victory of self-awareness which yeah. the next time it's up for them, they might make some different choices and try a little different strategy. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's interesting because I just did a Facebook live um, last night to this group um, on the mindset of fasting. And it's so funny, like it's like you tapped into exactly what I said, that what I realized in my own journey with fasting is it was a beautiful mirror for how I use food. And I realized that a lot of times food was just a state changer for me. It was just trying to change an emotional state. But there were a lot of other tools that I had, like listening to music. I I actually got this idea. Maybe when we're together um, in Nashville, we could create this. I got this idea of what if we all put together like the most inspiring, exciting songs and we put it on a Spotify list. And when when you're like in the fasting, like, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. You put on a a a list of music that changes your state. Love it. Yes, TM that. That's so good. Yes. Okay. So maybe we can look and pull together our music uh, loves, and because I do think it's all you're looking at when you get into that discomfort. There's an opportunity there to go. Okay. How do I use food? Why am I using it? It, Do I use it for joy? Okay, yeah. So I use it for joy. But gosh, there are a lot of other things you can use for joy. And And understanding that is really cool. Huge. It's so empowering. And then the other side of it is once people start to, because I'm a science geek and I, I like the data, once people start to recognize all of the benefits on a physiologic level. So yes. for instance, specific to cancer, when we look at the hallmarks of cancer, there are 10 hallmarks of cancer. And you could just Google that right now and go list the, the hallmarks of cancer. It's also a whole section in our book. Um, but people like Adrian Sheck and Thomas Seafried and Don D'Agostino and a lot of those in the cancer research realm that work with fasting and work with uh, ketogenic diet and cancer states, what we have been learning in the research is we initially thought it was just coming in on that uh, glucose starvation level. Mm-hmm. And, we, and which is one of the 10 hallmarks of cancer. The cancer really loves its sugar. It just, it, it, you know, there's granted, there are some theories, at least in cell line studies that, um, that more, some cancers are more metabolically active than others, meaning some are more glucose sinks than others. But ultimately we all uh, can do well on a low glycemic diet, depending mm-hmm. on what's going on. So I want to kind of throw that little side note in there, but ultimately what we found is the other nine hallmarks of cancer are directly impacted by ketones themselves, mm. by lack of food. So a, 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 a fasted state itself, which does things like HDAC inhibition, which is all about epigenetic expression and methylation, which does things like induce apoptosis, which does things like stop cell proliferation, um, which does things like increase um, immune cell function. I mean, just giving examples of some of the 10 hallmarks of cancer, I don't know of a single drug. Yeah, the single that that. more than two or three of those targets at any given time. And yet a fasted state or a state of ketones We'll hit all 10 of those simultaneously. That's awesome. You know, um, Funk says the same thing with your brain. He wow. said that when you're in ketosis, that ketones will improve 20% of your brain power. And he Love said it. the exact same thing. 
that there is no drug on the planet that can do that for you. So, and then, you know, the other person that I think of when you're, when you're saying that is uh, Terry Walls. Did you ever read her book? Oh, yeah. And in fact, that was like the answer to a few of your folks' questions on the forum today is about autoimmunity and whatnot. This woman rebuilt her nervous system from the brain all the way through the central nervous system, thanks to a diet rich in in a plant-dense, ketogenic, fasting combination diet um, specific to recovering from an incredibly aggressive form of MS. Yeah. And, and she watched her for years, like get up on the stage with a cane to no cane, uh, moving around. I mean, I watched her recovery in real time of hearing her start to share her story years ago before she became who we all know her to be today, as well yeah. as getting funded research projects going in VA hospitals around the country. Awesome. Yeah. You know, um, her, what I love about her story is that she's a medical doctor and she went the trial route with the trial medication and was like, let me, let me go and get the best of the best in medical care. And that's when her decline started. And the minute she let go of that and she started to look at the mitochondria and really look at ketosis as, and ketones as healing to the mitochondria that's and then a few. I mean, there were obviously other things. She really just started to go in the right direction. So and beautiful, yeah. and to see her repairing every year. It's not, and that's the other thing I like people to know is it's a process. It's not a switch. It's not like you went to bed one night and woke up with cancer, like your friend you described at forty with the outside world looking perfect, but no one had ever thought to take a look under the hood to see right. what was brewing. Today right. on the planet, today when half of the men and one in two point four of the women will will. Per Western medicine statistics for the World Health Organization, the NIH, the NCI, National Cancer Institute, say that in the United States, one in two men, one in 2.4 women will have cancer in their lifetime. We have to start looking under the hood way before we become symptomatic or way before we do our quote unquote preventative breast, you know, mammogram. What the F is that? Like, there's nothing preventative about smashing and radiating your boobs annually and waiting to see what type of a bad experiment that leads to. Right, right. (laughs) We need to do a whole, we need to do a whole episode on just breast cancer and women's health because, wow, agreed, totally agreed. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. watching people like the Terry Walls and others, when we learned about what got us ill mm-hmm. and we start to work on getting us out of there. And like I said, when everyone thought she was a miracle, the first time she like crawled up on stage with two canes and could barely walk. And I'm like, oh, fabulous. That <laughs> woman is like biking and out there right. speaking, no canes at all. I'm like, I've watched her even recover more. It's it's rarely too late. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that. So one of my, one of my taglines that I, that I just think in my head, whenever I'm talking to a patient is it's never too late to reset your health. It's never too late. You just need the tools and it's not going to come in the form of one tool. It's probably going to come in the form of like 20 tools that you're going to have to put together. So I think we really, one of the other places we've really gotten off track with healthcare is we think one diagnosis, one, one pill, one surgery. And then when we decide we don't like that anymore, we come over to natural health and we go, (laughs) <laughs> we, use the same, we use the same principles and we go, oh, okay, well, now instead of the pill or surgery, I'm going to do the supplement or I'm going to do the fast. And one thing that we really want to emphasize is that it's a, it's a lifestyle, which is why I, when people ask me, how long should I fast? How long should I be doing fasting? And what I would say is it's as long as you want to stay healthy. Totally. And it's great because specific with the cancer world, when Dr. Longo, Walter with a V is in Victor, when his work came out, I don't know, several years ago, I've been watching him for a while before I started actually seeing him on the speaker circuit. And when he presented his data at the time um, that I heard him, I think it was like 2011, he talked about the studies, the research, because, you know, this guy was a longevity researcher. He was not a cancer researcher, but they kind of accidentally stumbled upon the fact that Patients who fasted around the use of, at that time, the study was with doxorubicin. Doxel, or in uh, the breast cancer world, often is also known as adromycin. Mm -hmm. So in that realm, as he noted, that if you basically fast 48 hours before the day of and 48 hours after, so basically a good five solid days of fasting, you don't need the the pre-drugs with the chemo. Your um, recovery, 
your, your recovery after the treatment is faster than those who didn't fast. You have much less side effects. Your recurrence rate is lower and your cardiovascular damage from that drug, which is known as the red devil and is known cardiotoxin, decreases substantially. That's when everyone started going, oh, that's interesting. And then, of course, started freaking everybody out because even um, some of the questions that your listeners have posed and I have all the time is that fasting around cancer treatment, that goes in the face of every bad piece of advice we've ever been given is don't lose weight in cancer. What Dr. Longo's work was able to even show is, yes, people would lose the weight, but they would bounce back up and stabilize their weight more than people who never fasted during the whole process. I have done this with thousands of patients going through the cancer process and not once seen anyone suffer deleteriously from too much weight loss. I tell you there's a difference between being skinny and losing weight versus metabolic wasting. What your doctors are trying to avoid is metabolic wasting, but it is not a calorie centric process. So you can throw 10,000 calories a day of crappy Sonic milkshakes and angel food cake, which is actually in the recommended eating list from the American Cancer Society. Um, (laughs) And you can throw that at people and you can throw boost shakes and insure shakes, which the only thing it insures is an untimely death. Because what happens in a state of cachexia, metabolic wasting, it's not calorie sensitive, so it doesn't matter how much you eat. And it is fueled by inflammation, angiogenesis, which is new blood flow, and carbohydrates, sugar. Okay? So it is actually better for a cachectic patient, in my personal experience, to fast, obviously work with someone if you're dealing with this, um, to fast versus feast during this process. And I see it stabilize things way faster. And between 40 and 70% of patients who die from cancer succumb to cachexia. And so that's the place, if I can stave that process off, we change things pretty drastically. We're going to have an entire chapter. We we allude to this in the book already in the metabolic approach to cancer, but Jess and I have another book coming out about a year and a half from now. We're going to have an entire chapter on I'm so, like, I'm so sick and tired of having the same conversation around cachexia. I could step on my eyeballs. Um, but it's ridiculous because when you actually sit down with an oncologist, say, explain to me the biochemistry of a cachexia metabolic sarcopenia uh, process. And you watch them tell you and tell you it's non-responsive to calories. And yet they're still telling them, give them insure and boost. Yeah. You just, you're like, where, what happened? What disconnect happened here. And so these are the types of things that we can really change the outcomes with fasting around our chemo. And where Dr. Walter started showing it was powerful with doxorubicin, then we started showing it was powerful around um, platin drugs and around taxanes. And then we started realizing, wow, it actually works really nicely around Herceptin and, and uh, Fastlodex injections and basically all targeted therapies and hormone therapies. Right, everything. Right. So I've teamed up with Tony Horton. Do you know Tony Horton? He was the creator of P90X, one of the most revolutionary at-home fitness programs. And we created together a new fitness program called Power Sync 60. And it is literally, this program's never been done. It is a revolutionary 60-day program for both men and women. So here's why I want you to join us is that we literally created PowerSync 60 with you in mind. So it doesn't matter if you're a cycling woman, a postmenopausal woman, or a man. One of the things I brought to Tony was that when we work out, we have to think about our hormones. And he had never done that in the millions of workouts that he's created in his lifetime. We also included a free bonus meal plan and a customized tailor way you can eat right for yourself. Also, of course, we put some fasting in there and it was a beautiful meeting of the minds. So I, it, this is like a passion project that I'm so excited to share with you. And in order to get it, all you gotta do is visit drmindy.org and use the code PS60PELS. So PS60 and then my last name, PELS, P-E-L-Z, to get 20% off. And you get lifetime access to the program. So that's drmindy.org, and you use the code PS60PELS to join all of us. I'm actually doing this myself right now. So come join me, my community, on this incredible journey. I am so proud to bring this to you. 
And, and here's the challenge I see, and then I want to get into t- to protein in the GK index. Uh, but here's the challenge that I see is that the medical doctor world, the oncologists are just not up to speed on the research. So in this tribe, I see a lot of people say, everybody around me is so scared that I'm going to fast. They're worried about me. And I'm like, okay, here, take this article. This is from PubMed. Here you go. Take it. This is from the British Medical Journal. Take this. Uh, try, we're trying to get this information into people's hands so that it, they could take it to their doctors and right. educate their doctors. It's right ridiculous and actually what's really cool is in this uh tribe we have a lot of holistic practitioners we have a lot of medical doctors we have people who run hospitals in here we have um, i know i know that this is that there are people thirsty for the information so again this is why uh, interviews like this are so important so um, but let's, cause you and I could go off. I mean, by the way, you and I could talk for like three hours. This <laughs> Yeah. So, but let two things I really want this tribe to know one is where does protein fit into this? Um, and I'll give you a little bit of a background on it. Um, what we do get a lot of people in here that are weight loss resistant. Mm-hmm. Um, we get people who have been fasting and doing keto for a while, but they're not getting the result that they want. And when, when I start to point out protein, we need to lower protein. And to me, lower protein is under 20 grams of protein. Um, you see the mitochondria respond and you see people go to another level. So I'd love for you to explain why that happens. And then, then we'll talk about the GK index. Okay. Really quick on the protein piece is that again, this is a, you're, we're talking about a, a rogue state of cellular disease. Okay. We're not talking about the average Joe trying to lose a few pounds or a diabetic patient or car. We're talking about a rogue cell specific to cancer. Okay. So this is, this conversation is very directed at the cancer population of what we're getting ready to talk about. Absolutely. What we know is that, um, and also what I found to be true with very, uh, really resistant metabolic processes too, which have a much higher, it was another one of your questions, has a much higher incidence of cancer among diabetics, okay, very much so, like a three to three times um, um, higher rate of, of cancer in the diabetes environment, so the metabolic environment, so that should also give you a clue, the more metabolically inflexible you are, the more higher your risk of cancer in all situations. But when we see folks who are really metabolic resistant or have this rogue cellular disease process going on, when we put in too much protein, if we do great and we get all the carbs out, we're like, yeah, but we're like staking it three times a day. You know, I've seen on some of the forums, I remember I was like, steak doesn't turn into cake, you know, and everyone yeah. goes on these whole like carnivore sense. I'm like, the carnivore diet. Like, like, and slap uh, them across the face and say, if we were talking about healthy cellular metabolism, that might be the case. But in unhealthy cell metabolism, rogue mitochondrial broken down cell metabolism in a cancer patient, you are absolutely pouring gasoline on an open fire. Okay. And so what happens in these situations is they take that and they turn it into gluconeogenesis, new glucose, and they start to fuel you just as much with the protein. So we very much keep our patients at about 0.8 gram per kilogram maximum protein levels. What we do is we don't guess. Okay, we test, assess, address, adjust accordingly. Um, We never guess in this realm, especially in the cancer realm. So if we are finding that at 0.8 grams, um, we are getting uh, desired insulin, hemoglobin A1C, GKIs, insulin growth factor rates, then fabulous. If we find that people have some extra metabolic flexibility, we can take them up as much as one, maybe 1.2 grams per kilogram. That's usually in a state where people are a little bit more metabolically flexible and are not uh, spilling that into the sugar. But you see it immediately because we're testing regularly, blood testing, folks. You do not guess with urine here. You do not guess with breath with this population. And then the same is true when I have some patients who can't handle more than 0.4 or 0.6. Any little amount will turn into sugar. So I also know there are some people out there with very, very aggressive certain types of brain cancers, which are stating that they have some success with a pure carnivore diet in these cases. What I think is happening in those cases, we're seeing something on the outwards that it might be lowering people's seizure threshold, but I'm looking at their whole terrain. I'm looking at labs and I'm looking at things that just say, 
it's a matter of time before this little monkey explodes mm. throughout the whole process. And we're going to be dealing with something a lot worse than a seizure. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I'm a little bit resistant to hearing that, um, especially when we see work from doc- people like Dr. Uh, Seafried, who talks about glutamine and how mm-hmm. it needs a lot of these processes, which is going to be elevated in your high protein rich diets, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm really resistant to a carnivore diet in the cancer population. And until I see more evidence, I will keep saying that. I think that's um, really that I think that's really important because people think going keto means you don't look at the protein. And that's not the case. I mean, even for people who don't have a cancer diagnosis, right. Right. you really have to keep that protein down. So thank you, you for explaining that. And it's huge because like the Atkins diet was a fabulous diet for people wanting to lose weight, but it also put a lot of people in kidney failure. It also did not take into quality, you know, into account quality of the food. So basically all these people living on super fun sites, animal protein, um, things like that, that this, those were things that in our population, I tell people in my world, when I'm coaching on this, we talk about eating clean keto, plant-based keto. The yeah. still predominant intake of food is low glycemic above the ground plants. Yep. Nine to fifteen servings a day. Awesome. I can keep my people in ketosis with that, with a proper amount of protein, just enough to get their physiologic needs met, with a high amount of fasting or of fat. If I have people who are fat resistant, or we can't get there, or they really are. Um, for whatever reason, really resistant to eating a ketogenic diet, that is precisely where fasting comes in. Yeah, we can get into a state of metabolic flexibility and even show ketones in a variety of ways without eating 90% of your diet is fat. And fasting is also the way that I when I hear people say, Oh, well, the fats could feed the cancer cells still, by the way, all cell line studies. Number two, um, that oh, glutamine or methionine can definitely feed this. Then that's where fasting is so gorgeous because what? Yep. you're taking yep. all those concerns out. Yep. That's what I, so I always say when in doubt, fast. <laughs> <laughs> like, when you don't know what ratio to do, it. just start fasting right. because the body knows what to do. I mean, we, I, in, the, in the patients that I coach, we've seen some really sick people with a lot of co-infections like Lyme and parasites and heavy and heavy metals and EBV and like all this, all this stuff, just pulling the immune system down. And I always say, okay, let's, when in doubt, let's let innate intelligence kick in here and figure out what needs to be happening. And the, one of the major ways you tap into innate intelligence is by taking food out of the equation, which is, why I love fasting. So it yeah. is so much more resource to to healing the body, to doing yeah. what it needs to do in other places. And yeah. then that sort of segues into this GKI conversation. Yeah, that's a, that's a people get really locked on that. And I'm yeah. like, I don't yeah. know. Everybody yeah. should be locked and on that, And not just it is that, you know, I, I tell you, you know, even Miriam Kalamian, who's my dear friend and colleague who wrote the book Keto for Cancer, who is a huge mm-hmm. consultant with Seafried and all their work. She and I will tell you, we're, you know, Seafried and those guys, they're at the bench. We're at the bedside. Right. So what we see at the bench and what we hope to create the bedside oftentimes don't jive, don't jive. Okay. It is very difficult to get a GKI below one. It's That's what difficult. everybody d- t- says is when, when I like put out yeah. the GK index, People are like, what? And then they get yeah. discouraged. And right. I think exactly. that's what, why it's an interesting index. But do we need to obsess on it? Absolutely. And my feeling is probably similar to sometimes when we just fast periodically, hitting that GKI marker periodically is likely having the same kind of like shaking down, you know, the, the thermometer, shaking down the, the etch-a-sketch of like creating a blank slate of giving us a, a little push, a little nudge in that metabolic flexibility. But ultimately, a lot of I have a lot of patients who work decades of high stress, estrogen dominance, poor sleep patterns, um, sunrise syndrome with elevated glucose in the morning. When we see those patterns, we may never get their glucose down um, in, a, in a range below 85 or way lower. Um, we may never get that GKI, but I'm watching other factors. I'm looking at scans. I'm looking at blood tests. And I am not seeing there being a problem. Even if we just work towards that number, we seem to get like, um, more flexibility. Now, the, to me, I've only seen evidence of, what, of this being important in the cancer realm. When people yeah. are pushing it for other places, if you're wanting to do it, like maybe sweeps of prevention, I mean, even Dr. Seyfried says, well, then maybe do a seven day, you know, five to seven day water fast once or twice a year. There you go. Right. There's right. your, 
there's your prevention, there's your cancer vaccine, right. you know, <laughs> that approach maybe yep. versus trying to daily hit that number. Because guess what happens when you're under stress because you're not hitting your GKI? Your GKI right. never no. Right, right. And let's let's go back to something you said early on is that thoughts will control the cells. I mean, Bruce Lipton taught us that. That and so if you're so stressed about hitting the numbers, yeah. it then then you're not doing yourself any good either. So exactly. yeah, exactly. I, so yeah. I think that's just a that's a super important important point. The other thing that I want to point out um, and it, it, to the tribe is that what I've noticed when you are trying to bring your health back, whether it's mm-hmm. from a scary diagnosis like cancer. Um, whether it's uh, just because you feel crummy and you want to you want to get yourself back on track, um, that there are literally two things you have to look at. One is you have to look at your lifestyle, which is what we're talking about. And there are a lot of pieces in lifestyle. There's fasting. There's keto. There's get out in nature. Get sun. Get exercise. I mean, we could we could talk about that forever. But then there's these root causes that have damaged the body. And what I see is that a lot of times people come at lifestyle trying to correct it and they missed looking at the root causes that the two have to marry each other to get to that next level. And then this is why working with someone like you is so powerful because you can look back and say, here are all the things that we see. Now let's apply all of these principles and then let's look at what the testing shows us. If you want to beat cancer and you're in a cancer diagnosis, that's what it looks like. Yeah. It's not go after the tumor or the tumor cell. It's go after, you could do that. That's one piece of the tiny equation. (laughs) You know, you've got to go after everything that got you there to begin with. And you've got to change. You cannot heal from the soil in which you got sick. So you have to be amending that along the way. So when you've gone through your cytoreductive therapies or your conventional therapies or even your non-conventional therapies that should have been matched to you individually, by the way. So when I see people spending $70,000, $100,000 on alternative therapies that were never appropriate for the cancer type that that person had, because no one ever did their homework to assess that person's terrain to see actually what the issues were, same gripe I have in Western medicine, where we have the technologies now to have truly precision medicine, and yet everyone gets on standard of care, which is ridiculous, Um, it's like... We right, like why would everybody why would everybody get the same drug even in like blood pressure i don't understand that exactly like, and especially now we can run our snips we can run our epigenetics we can run a test called one ohm to look at your drug meta, meta, um, metabolism processes you can look at your uh, tissue assays and know hey does this drug even respond to your you know does this tissue even respond to that drug we don't have to guess in the world anymore. Right. You know, and that's one of the things that kind of segues into what, you know, a big one is what can we look at every year as part of our physical examination to right. see what might be a blind side? Now, first of all, I always like people to go in and take our 10 part, 10 questions per, per part questionnaire at the front of our book, because it helps you see some of your blind spots. It helps you look at some of the priorities within your terrain that you might have been uh, blind to or simply ignoring Putting the one of my patients says putting the sticker over the check engine light on your dashboard. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> so we always, when I uh, was in private practice, every year in my community they had a, a something called the nine health fair, nine R health fair, every year, and it basically for sixty bucks you'd get your CBC, which is your complete blood count with differential. You'd get your CMP, which is your metabolic count, which kind of looks at your electrolytes and your organ function. We'd get a TSH, we'd get a C-reactive protein, CRP, we'd get a vitamin D3. Um, And if you were a man, you got a PSA, that was always kind of added in, they never offered um, something for the women. But those were the very basics then. In the last few years, they've added in a hemoglobin A1C. I'm here to tell you that those simple tests right there, I could already see the train coming. What's going? Yeah. It's this part. Way before, and this was a $60, $80, an annual out-of-pocket test, right? Now, my patients, you can get this information. What I can tell in a basic CBC, which is a $12 out-of-pocket test, if you go into a walk-in lab, I can look at a lot of your nutritional status. I can look at your methylation. I can look at your immune function. I can look at your marrow function. I can see your NLR, neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio, to show me prognoses. Um, Every one of these things I'm telling you, you'd go into a PubMed search on like neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio and realize that if it's off, if you've got more than two 
to one neutrophils to lymphocytes, you're kind of screwed. It's a bad prognosis for any condition. Okay. Like these are the places like tune up your immune system. What's causing the stress in your immune system. If you've got chronically low white blood cells and you've not taken a drug to diminish them like chemo or radiation, then you're likely dealing with a co-infection or a heavy metal or some other toxicant that's basically standing on your immune system and not allowing it to function. These are cheap, $12. You can know what you're dealing with. Right. And people, it's like, forget spending the money on the NutriVal and the SpectraCell. Agreed. 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 There are, uh, again, I go back to like root cause tests. Like, let us look at what are some of these things that are pulling you down before you tell me you're allergic to wheat. There's a reason you're allergic to wheat and things like that. So are are those tests in your book? Yep. Um, okay. Each section I kind of have a section like under the inflammation. Everyone should be looking at their C-reactive protein, their high sensitivity CRP every year. It should be under one. Always. Okay, if it's even 1.1, you got something brewing. Okay. Yeah. If it's much higher than that, that's also prognostic in a lot of disease conditions. And by prognostic, what I mean is that it basically says, if you have this current disease state, your likelihood of recovering from it is poor. Right. Okay. Right. So that's a key, getting that down. My trifecta that my patients have called my trifecta, I think everyone should get this run every single year. An LDH, a lactase dehydrogenase, this used to be part of a complete metabolic panel. We threw it out about 15 years ago, which is ridiculous because that really is our marker of metabolic mitochondrial function. Mm. Just think about why do we have yeah, go look at the Krebs cycle, you guys. (laughs) Like how you're metabolically functioning. Yeah. Um, It's also one of the main markers in cancer evaluation, especially like lymphomas, leukemias, multiple myelomas. It is the cancer marker. Anything, depending on if it's a a quest or a lab core, um, one of them has a cutoff of around 250, the other in the 600s. I want one of your below 175 or the other below 450. And then the third part of the trifecta is the sedimentation rate, also known as the ESR. That should be under 10. When any of those are individually high, there can be a lot of different reasons. But when all three are high, I know that there's something like a cancer already likely growing. Okay. Yeah, say the three again. It was LDH, ESR. And what was the third one? CRP. CRP, yeah. Yeah. Right? And that right there, so if people pay for a CBC with diff, a CMP, and a trifecta every year, you're paying about $105 out of pocket to invest in a basic screen of your healthcare. The other thing is if folks get their vitamin D levels well above 50, um, right there, we cut the incidence of all chronic illness across the board per the vitamin C cancel of the NIH by 70% right? Um, You'll be shocked at how many people are walking around with levels below 50. If you're dealing with autoimmune conditions or cancer, I'm wanting it between 80 and 120. Typically, I will tell you this, like if I see someone's vitamin D and it's under 30, I'm already very concerned of stuff happening. If it's under 20, I'm looking for cancer. Okay, that's how significant this is. Ferritin, another big um, overlooked one. People think they're anemic all the time, but there's 26 different types of anemia, of which only one of them is iron deficiency. And the only way to qualitate that and quantify that is with a ferritin, which is an iron storage. That range should be very narrow between roughly 35 to 70, 75 max. If it's above that, you are oxidizing the crap out of your body and you are also fueling cancer processes. And it's also a significant finding when there's other metal toxicity on board. I was just going to say, when I see ferritin off, I'm like lead. lead. Yeah, that is binding. Same thing with things like calcium binding. Nailing it. Nailing it. Binding to that. Nailing it. And we shouldn't be supplementing iron or copper or calcium. Even if they're low, they're low for another reason. You want to go to the root cause to change the absorption of those minerals versus give the minerals because they don't metabolize the same way. And then another one we want to look at, hemoglobin A1 Okay. Everybody should be under a five. Everybody. If you are above a five, you are metabolically inflexible. If you are encroaching on 5.5, that's what we call quote unquote pre-diabetic. At 5.7 in parts of this country, you're already diabetic. Um, Western, if you live in the Southeast part of the world, Southeast part of the US, they say you're not diabetic till after six. Please don't wait for that point. 
Okay. Um, And that is, again, that's glycosylated end products. That is also basically the browning, the oxidizing, the rusting of our, of our inner engine. So the higher that number, the more rusted out you are, the faster you're aging and the higher risk of all mortality and all chronic illness. So if you did nothing else, but get those five tests, CBC, CMP trifecta, the vitamin D3, the ferritin and hemoglobin A1C every year, I will be able to tell you with that amount of testing exactly what you're, what you like. I can almost guess your um, longevity. I can guess your disease condition. And these tests are nothing. And then if we want to dive deeper, we can do, like you said, go into some of the specialty testing to find out precisely. But that's what freaks me out is all the people who said I was healthy until I was diagnosed with cancer. No possible way. Was yeah. that, was that possible? No right. possible. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Hey. Yeah. Oh my God. I have so many, so many things to say on that. But, yeah. um, but I, our time is up and I want to do one thing because I, you're not, you're go back and you'll look at the comments. People are making some really great comments. Okay. Uh, like, well, when this, when this live ends, then you can go okay. into the resetter group okay. and look at the comments. But, um, but here's what I want to end on because I think that, it, it like somebody just said so much good information. I don't know where to start. Mm-hmm. And this is what I'm going to tell you is here's where you start. How many of you have been given your blood work by Kaiser or by some by your medical doctor and they say everything's fine. And then they send you your blood work and you don't know what to do with it. So let's just recap those the what you want. There was uh, and I'll go through the tests and then you can tell me what the ranges are. And then what I would say is, why don't you all go and pull up those blood, that blood work and look at that. And if there's an imbalance, then I would say start with fasting and start with what we're teaching you all in here. And if it doesn't change, that's where you got to reach out and get help. Totally agree. That's a very safe place to start. Um, It's hard to do the ranges on the CBC and CMP because we could take 20 minutes just going through each of those individually. But basically, when you're looking at a lab range, remember the labs are based on the average of the population in the region in which they were tested. So that's why you'll see variation across the U.S. Right. So you want to be on the inner parameters, basically. So I tell people, shave off points on either end of their range and make sure you live within that. That's kind of the simplest place. But when we talk about some of these other tests outside of CBC and CMP, I want your ferritin between, say, 35 and 75. Okay. Um, I want your vitamin D3 at least at or above 50. But if you're dealing with a chronic illness, really getting yourself up there closer to 80. And again, work with a functional practitioner because there's a tiny population that can have some issues with a higher level. It's I've seen two out of tens of thousands, so it's not that big of an issue. Um, uh, a hemoglobin A1C under 5. Yeah. Um, and I should throw out, maybe an insulin is a good one to run. I like it around three. Mm-hmm. So that's good. And then, um, oh, the CRP under one, you want to get a high sensitivity CRP under one, a sedimentation rate, also known as an ESR under 10, and an LDH, also known as a lactase dehydrogenase, or an LD, it comes from LDH or LD under 175 or under 450, depending on the lab ranges. Yeah. That right there gives you a place to start to look. And if you haven't had those tests run, it's time to go get a run. Yeah. There's, and there's lots of ways you can run them on your own. I mean, oh, you walk in labs, direct labs, yeah. tons yeah. now. Yeah. yeah. Unless you live in New York State, just go over to Connecticut. but then you said start there and maybe take the 10 questionnaire um and see what's standing out because we ask questions that people wouldn't normally think of okay we try really hard to what are blind spots in the world today that people don't recognize or being exposed to or dealing with chronically um and then once you have that information um and uh, like you said the fasting is a great strategy place to start and if it doesn't alter it usually just to give you an example um uh, kind of a rule of thumb, I tell folks every day, 13 hours, twice a week, 16 to 18 hours, once a month, three days of water fasting is sort of what I push for people to get to in their general health and wellness that aren't dealing with a chronic illness. Um, then at that point, maybe two or three sessions, cycles, months of that would be when you retest those labs and see what that's done. If you're dealing with something more aggressive, you might work with your provider to maybe do a little deeper dive into a longer fast with medical supervision and take a look at that because we can change. When we would do women in cancer retreats, we would get these labs the day, uh, the week before, the four-day mm. retreat, 
And we'd wait a week after and retest their labs. And we saw the shift in the right direction across the board every single time with every single patient. Four days. Four days. That's awesome. Yeah. It's never too late. It's never too late. Yeah. So, okay, let me finish with this. This is her book. If you all haven't seen her book, I really recommend you get it. It's awesome. Amazon, I think, is where I got mine. Um, You do have a Facebook group um, called The Metabolic Approach to Cancer. Mm -hmm. Is that? Yes. Okay. And you have a website. And what's that? Is that just your name? DRNASHA, Dr. Nasha, N-A-S-H-A.com. And on that, we have kind of a physician section, a patient section, a lot, a lot, a lot of great little, there's a little freebie handouts sort of like what to do if you first get diagnosed with cancer, a little freebie there, a lot of podcasts and other information. We try to be an information hub and we try and keep the data relevant on our Facebook pages, et cetera. So people can stay current with the research that literally is exploding as you and your group right. know. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And then uh, Dr. Nisha is speaking in Nashville at a conference that I'm going to be at. Um, I actually get to speak with Dr. Pump on the first day. So I know you, yeah, I know you were speaking on the, on Saturday, right? Friday so, or Saturday. I can't recall. Yep. Okay, so what they've done, which is really cool, is they've opened it up to the public on Saturday. So I'll be posting, and it will be live streamed. So I will be posting, and hopefully, I'm pretty sure they have you in one of the the public forums. People can see you. So I will post that for everybody as well. And then people want to know, I'm looking at the questions. A lot of people want to know if I'll post those tests that you just talked about in the ranges. I'll put that in there. And you're actually now officially a resetter because I invited you into the tribe. So fun. I will totally scoop through the questions and try and respond any we didn't get to and fill in any more gaps that might have come up after our talk today. But what a great group. You guys are speaking to my heart and soul. Um, Like I said, I think you are on the cancer finding journey with me and I'm grateful for all of you for all of that. Well, we're grateful for you. And this is going to be a game changer for a lot of people. So thank you. I really appreciate it. So right on. All the best, everyone. Okay. Have a great one. That's what resetting is all.